Welcome to Shallow Research, an everyday pop culture and lifestyle recommendation podcast from two PhDs in yoga pants. In this podcast, we use our nerd powers of research, analysis, and synthesis to break down what makes our days a little bit brighter, aside from our scholarly pursuits. I'm Christina. I have a PhD in cinema and media studies, and I'm living down in St. Petersburg, Florida, and I'm joined by my partner in crime, Laura. Hi, everyone. It's Laura. Uh, Yes, I'm coming from California, and I have a PhD in educational research. So this episode is going to be a little bit special. It still follows our same basic format, um, but many of our listeners probably know that my dad, Nicholas, passed away a few weeks ago from cancer. So this is going to be a special tribute episode to him. And our first deep dive um, is going to get into some of our favorite children's books that we wouldn't mind revisiting uh, as adults or passing on to younger friends um, and recommending to the next generation. Um, And that's because growing up, my dad had a lot of different cultural and literary kind of interests, but um, he always made sure that I was surrounded by literally thousands of great books as a kid. And it was just like such a defining part of my childhood. Like we didn't have a lot of other stuff, but we always had books. Um, and we'd often like max out the number of books that a family was allowed to borrow at the library. Um, we'd spend weekends going to use going to use bookstores. And because I was surrounded kind of by all these classics, both for kids and for adults, like that really helped push me ahead. Um, Like I read Moby Dick when I was six years old (laughs) because that is what was like on the shelf in my living room. Um, But we're going to take it back to more of a (laughs) children's genre um, for this next segment. So should we get into our deep dive? We are. I'm highly intimidated, but let's dive in anyway. (laughs) So as we said before the break, um, For this very special episode, we're doing a deep dive into children's books, and this segment is inspired by Laura's father, Nicholas, and his great love for books, and and also how he surrounded uh, Laura with many books. And so we've each compiled a list of um, some of our favorites, some of the ones that have stuck with us. And as always, uh, we'd like to, uh, you know, ask you to share yours as well with us at shallowresearch at gmail.com. But to kick us off, Laura, um, what are some of the books besides Moby Dick, which I just <laughs> read at age six, <laughs> that, uh, that you, you found that kind of stick with you and you would recommend Yeah, so many. So, I mean, my siblings and I are going through my dad's books right now, and he has this amazing collection that I referenced earlier. Um, But, you know, I also have this, like, sentimental attachment to these books that I still have copies of from when I was a kid um, that I just remember, like, having such an emotional response to or being 
defining pieces of kind of ages, you know, five through 16 or something. Mm. Um, So one of the first sets of books that I remember getting was the Little House in the Prairie series. And I think someone gave it to me because, you know, the main character slash author is named Laura also my name um (laughs) but I just loved that she got to tell her story um and I may or may not have developed a slight crush on Alonzo Almanzo whatever his name is Wilder (laughs) the guy she eventually ends up getting married but too but I mean that's not even like the crux of the whole tale you know you really kind of dig into her family life this pioneer adventure um yeah and it's all told through her point of view um now I mean the interesting thing about Little House on the Prairie did you read those books as a kid I did. Actually, my introduction to the series was our teacher. My teacher read us um, actually the Alonzo book because there's one book that's from the perspective called, I think, Farmer's Boy from his perspective. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I remember in that book, he the description of food is is, you know, kind of very you could you feel like you were eating listening to this. And then in in the books about her life you always get the sense of them as kind of at times always being on the the cusp of not starvation, but, you know, um, not having enough to eat. Yeah. Like not, they're always sort of like just getting by. And yeah, I mean, at certain points they're like, at one point I think they're living in some sort of like sod, like cut type thing, like in the carved into the side of a hill. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, they're definitely like striking out there and, you know, part of this, like, generation or sort of era um, that was populating, like, the Midwest and and beyond of our country. Um, So, I mean, I also more recently read, though, Pioneer Girl, which is this kind of annotated biography that walks through her writing and really goes Hmm. back and, like, fact checks a lot of it, but also puts it into context and kind of explains it as a, a period. Her book says, like, being emblematic of a particular time period and there's some problematic stuff particularly in regards to how Native Americans are treated in the book Mm -hmm. Um, but Pioneer Girl also exposes such scandals as like uh, there's this bulldog Jack you will relate to this Christina as a great Uh number of bulldogs but you'll also be horrified to know that like in the book um, the bulldog like comes with them you know on part of their journey and Apparently he did not. They like sold Jack off in real life. Did not take their bulldog. So that's the kind of you know hard hitting. I do kind of support that because I don't. Bulldogs are not frontier dogs. <laughs> that's true. Like, like maybe <laughs> I mean I if we were to do a little more research, there might be a picture of this dog just like laying on a couch, and it's like okay, Jack is fine. <laughs> that's true. That's true. Maybe he wanted to be left behind. <laughs> that's the kind of hard-hitting content you can get from Pioneer Girl Um, but you know the other thing is like her daughter played a huge role um, in editing kind of shaping her books and really sensationalizing them to like make the narrative or the storyline better so if you're a grown-up who enjoyed those books like you might enjoy Pioneer Girl's like a look back at that through a more critical lens so check that out Um, A couple other favorites. So I loved this book called From the Mixed Up Files of Mrs. Basil E. Frankenwheeler. And I think you said you read this too. Yeah. So the idea is like there's sort of a back plot about this piece of art that they're like trying to find or find out the backstory to. And I don't actually really remember that part. But the the crux of it is that they go to the Metropolitan Museum of Art and they end up like secretly living there. This girl and her brother. 
these children let's be yeah. clear yeah, like, <laughs> two kids well, live children. In <laughs> and they sleep in like Marie Antoinette's old bed and stuff and they like swim in the fountain to bathe themselves and they get like coins in the fountain to fund their meals in the museum cafeteria oh, yes which was an automat which is awesome I'm sort of obsessed with automats <laughs> yeah no so I mean I think it was just sort of incredible to me that these two kids would not only get to like go into the city and see the wonder- wonders of the Met but like, actually live within it for a period of time like the bulk of the the book and I mean I have a fondness for the Met in general like I feel like the Met is like my church like I walk (laughs) through it and I contemplate like how civilizations have evolved over time and um this book kind of evokes that feeling but like through the lens of these kids kind of striking out on their own I think they're like like the girls kind of like mad at their parents and maybe who hasn't had that Mm -hmm. fantasy when you're mad at your parents exactly live at the Met (laughs) right so she picked a good place to run away to um so definitely one I hope to read with my own daughter soon but as we can agree a title that doesn't really seem to be (laughs) indicating the thing that we find the most interesting about the book but this is true right (laughs) yeah Mrs. Basil E. Frank Miller plays a very minimal part it I sounds like say. laura ingles wilder's daughter needed to get in on that title right Hone <laughs> it a little make it a little more appealing um yeah so that's a good one though i think particularly probably appealing to girls who are kind of like oh kind of be fun to like strike out on my own and you know leave home as a kid and <laughs> do my own thing i don't need my parents telling me what to do um and for similar kind of reasons because of a strong female kid character the Ramona series was what I was going to talk about next oh yeah yeah um and that is also one of my favorites and I have this very distinct memory um of first getting into them in school actually because uh, this is another sort of nerd humble brag from my childhood but (laughs) in our library in school like during that you know during that period where you would get to go and like choose a book most of the kids like had to choose from these picture bookshelves, but you know, I was already reading Moby Dick. Like I didn't need to read no picture book. So I remember the librarian let me and my friend Ryan Dale <laughs> go to the chapter book shelves. And she was like, you can pick anything you want. You can read anything. I was like, whoa, obviously <laughs> I thought it was very cool. Um, and so I remember I picked like the first Ramona book as my first book. So I'll, I'll always have, of an attachment because of that as well um but then my my dad got me other books in the series and I think what I could really relate to is that they're a very like normal family (laughs) um you know they're not like super poor or anything but they're a good representation of maybe more of the working class experience where you know their parents like had enough to pay the bills but maybe not a ton of extra money or got worried when her dad got laid off um and they obviously love each other a lot, but it really captures those like day-to-day little arguments that you have or disagreements with your sister. Um, there's like the big sister, little sister relationship, although I, I am a lot more like the controlling older sister of Jesus, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> um, and it's like her dad smokes, which my dad tries to get him to quit. 
And I remember like going to my dad and being saying like, oh, well, Ramona got her dad to quit smoking by putting his cigarettes in the freezer. <laughs> he was like, yeah, I'm not doing that. <laughs> you know, I think my so I got I got copies of this books because my sister, my older sister was reading them. And I do remember reading that. And I remember that. Uh, we definitely put my grandmother's cigarettes in the freezer. <laughs> See, I mean, Beverly Cleary, the yeah. author of her bonus series, stopping people from, from developing lung cancer. I, I don't think um, that's. I don't think it stopped any smoking, but it definitely annoyed a lot of adults. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. And actually, I have to say, so I also did this thing last year for National Letter Writing Month where I wrote a letter a day to people that I admired and I wrote one to Beverly Cleary and I got a very nice postcard back from Ms. Cleary who is now 101 years old wow. yes um, but I will also say I, I read a lot of this series to my daughter Abby who's now six last year and um, there are some things that also kind of connected to a particular era. Like she and her sister are basically latchkey kids. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of like unsupervised um, time. Like they walk on their own, you know, to or from school. So her, my husband was like horrified. He was like, we can't set this example <laughs> <laughs> for our children. But I think I kind of like that about it too. Like they sort of had their own after school time that they had to navigate and like their own relationships with their friends and each other. And there's something about that, that to let them know that, that actually exists and there's like a way that children have done that in the past is kind of nice. Yeah. And I think in that way, the narrative isn't, you know, adult driven, right? Mm -hmm. Even though it is a lot about how kids like sort of interpret adult behavior mm -hmm. um, and how they're affected by it. So yeah, their monasteries might be deeper than you think. <laughs> <laughs> well, I remember that there's a male character, Henry, am I right? In oh, right. And he, right. I just, the, he has this dog named Ribsy because he was so skinny. And for some reason, <laughs> whenever I see a skinny dog, I'm like, hey, Ribsy. <laughs> That's right. A defining <laughs> piece of the Ramona series is that dog. Yeah. yeah. And then just a quick shout out to something I like a similar being, which is Harriet the Spy, which is set mm. in New York City, but has another a very independent female character. Um, and I loved that she was like a little bit wiser than the grownups kind of observationally. And I mean, it eventually like gets her in trouble all of her spying on her neighbors and stuff. But um, I really loved that book as well. So Ramona and Harriet might be two characters to emulate, you know, in certain regards, or at least relate to as a kid. Um, and then last but not least, my last like specific recommendation is Mrs. Frisbee and the Rats of Nim, um, which is a little, deviates a little bit from this mold. Um, but I, I was looking at the description earlier today to remember like the exact plot line, but it's basically like this mother mouse has to like move her mouse son to safety because but he's super sick, so it's complicated. And she gets in touch with like this super race of highly intelligent rats that have created their own <laughs> civilization and society, which feels like something I would not be into actually, which is a <laughs> testament to how well like this story is written. Um, and, and I don't know if you've read this one either. I have not read um, it. My experience of the Rats of Nim is the Secret of Nim movie. Which oh, there's is a, a movie. There's a ch as a child was was quite terrifying to me because <laughs> of the the way that the way the way that the rats were animated 
there was something about oh. it that just hit me at a moment um, <laughs> where I, I was like, well, this is terrifying. And I also, like the mom, it's interesting, you know, stories like that where it's the mother has to struggle and the child is in danger mm. were not surprisingly anxiety producing <laughs> for me as a child. All right, so maybe <laughs> don't revisit this one. But... Whereas, you know, the other, you know, the other stories in which children are independent and empowered, I'd be like, mm-hmm. yes, I can, you know, this is sort of the uh, reading that I can uh, get behind and enjoy in the same way. I mean, but it's a beautiful story of a mother mouse's love. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure the book is great. The movie is also quite good and is... But a little more singularly terrifying. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the the reason I included this on the list, though, is that I remember that my dad, like, read this book himself, like, independently, like, not just read it to me. Like, he read it and then I read it. And I think that's actually a cool thing to do with your kids. So he was like, like, he found my kid's book, like, worthy of his time, too. And then, like, we could talk about it together. Um, And then my parents' other strategy, kind of finding good books to read when we were a little bit younger... Which is the Caldecott and Newberry Metal book lists. Every year, those are good to revisit for classics, just as a guide to like fine ch- children's literature. And so things like The Snowy Day, uh, so many good classics on those lists. So if you're listening and you have kids, don't forget to check those out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But what were some of your favorites? Well, I think I did something similar when we picked this topic, is that I just looked at my bookcase and saw what has sort of persisted. And then also just off the top of my head, things that I thought, you know, said I thought that were really interesting as a kid that I read more mm-hmm. than once. And so, I mean, kind of following the same, uh, I guess I, if I was, you know, the first things sort of in my early reading life are the Berenstein Bear books. Um, Good old Berenstein Bears. And... The ones, you know, that, uh, that I liked were, you know, there was, there was, you know, kind of, they have the, what I like about those books is because they are, um, they have such interesting fantasy worlds about bears living like humans and the, Mm -hmm. the illustrations kind of, you can choose, okay, I'm going to look at this section. I'll read the whole thing for the moral. Um, right, so there right. were two books that I had re- I had as a kid that I read many times. One was called No Girls Allowed, which is kind of the story about how they, the boy bear gets a his own tr- like clubhouse. Oh yeah, his own like clubhouse or treehouse kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, and he wouldn't let his sister in, and then so his uh, so the mother kind of makes like an even better <laughs> clubhouse for <laughs> right. the girl and her friends, and she makes them cupcakes and stuff, and the boys kind of want to come then they're like oh can we come into and I thought that was you know as a kid sort of a really interesting way of, of kind of you know dealing with sibling yeah. conflict I remember the parents a lot it's like they were always sort of solving some conflict and sort of wise behind the way scenes where yeah. like the, the kids are basically being manipulated but they like, <laughs> you know well, the, the same with it this. all worked out <laughs> yeah there was another one called too many sweets which also was like just you know as you know the kids reading too many sweets and I think they just gave them a lot of them and they were sick of them but what right, the Berenstains yeah. did not realize perhaps is that 
when I reread these books, I would just be like, look at that cool uh, tree house that, those, that the boy had, you know, that was like separate from the parents. And then I was like, oh, look at them eat all those sweets. So I don't know. Like I kind of oppositionally read those books later. <laughs> You're like, there's like, a yeah. better life for me in bear country. <laughs> you know, I was sort of like, I'll just stop reading at page seven and I can really enjoy this transgressive moment. <laughs> You don't want everything to be neatly tied up at the end. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I remember giving, I gave a copy of No Girls Allowed to my nephew and I was sort of talking to him about it to figure out if he was doing the same thing. <laughs> um, he, he also was like, I like the beginning part of the, <laughs> with the treehouse. And then, yeah, thinking about like the other ones that I would recommend uh, were, were definitely a series of books that focus on the independence of the, of the, of the, sort of child characters so hmm. i was big into madeline lingle books um you know wrinkle in time of course but my favorite i think of those books was the one called um a swiftly tilting planet oh yeah third in that series where the the brother kind of keeps going i think it's called within which is sort of a quantum leap style he would like to leap into these different bodies to try to that's um, right yeah make things better and and then also Many Waters was one where the sort of two, the twin brothers of the sort of Meg character get sent back to biblical times um, oh, before the flood. Yeah, it's really interesting. So it's like they take the two most normal characters and then um, they're sent to Noah's time and kind of have to negotiate that and, and what that's like. And it was just sort of a really interesting huh engagement with a story that you heard before and it it actually noted the way that in the bible they you know they talk about just the the sons of noah but in the book the wives are actually big characters and kind of points out the you know the um sort of the sexism yeah. of those narratives well, and i thought had that a lot cool. of layers to them like you know they had sort of these sometimes sort of christian related themes um, but then also like feminist themes, but then this otherworldly kind of time travel-esque pieces. Well, and um, she had, yeah, I mean, I was sort of thinking about this before, like the Marvel Cinematic Universe, you have the uh, Madeline Langle universe mm-hmm. where she wove kind of, and if you, you look at some of the, the films that she, the films, the books that she wrote for uh, more uh, sort of middle or adult audiences, mm-hmm. sort of young adult um, there is a whole description of these worlds and there are some characters who traffic in the fantastic, like a wrinkle in time where they can yeah. time travel. And then there's other characters who are in these worlds that are more ordinary or what, uh, what we might call uncanny where things happen, but then they're sort of explained in a, in a kind of scientific way, or they don't even have time travel. And there's some characters that move between these two worlds and it was kind of cool to sort of read all the books and have them mention other characters or things mm-hmm. like that. Or sometimes the kids of these characters pop up and stuff like that. Right. Like there's connections across the books. And yeah, it's mm-hmm. true. I think she was really good at creating sort of an unsettling mood. Mm-hmm. Like you're never quite sure where things are going, you know, in her book sometimes. Um, and we both mentioned when we were talking about this that she basically lived like at St. John the Divine, like within mm-hmm. that sort of part of New York City um and you visited her like with your class and yeah I'm trying to remember if it was like seventh or eighth grade but someone our teacher knew somebody who right. of the family and we came in and we had an hour where we talked to her and I remember asking her a question 
And I said, you know, do you have any favorites in your books? Mm -hmm. And she said, oh, that would be like favorites of my children. And I always thought that was quite interesting. Um, And she was, you know, a sort of, at least she was a, it was interesting to sort of meet the person whose mind came up with, with this, all this sort of vast world. Definitely. Yeah. And I told you, my dad interviewed her at one point Mm -hmm. for something. So I'll have to try to find that interview. I'm not sure what it was for, but she was like very accessible to people who lived in the New York (laughs) City area, even though she created these very like separate otherworldly worlds <laughs> within <laughs> her books um but kind yeah, of I, I, have, I still have two books that she signed and but what was even more fun was that I think we were definitely 12 or 13 mm-hmm. one of one of my classmates wanted her to sign something but didn't have any of her books but she had a jean jacket <laughs> so she signed her jean jacket and we're all like man that jacket is wow and the <laughs> next day you ca- she came in and the the um <laughs> <laughs> the, the marker had been largely uh, washed out. She got, oh, no. she said that when she got home, her mother was not happy and like stain sticked it out. Oh, my, like, God. oh my God. Oh no. <laughs> the, somewhere there's like a, a denim jacket with like a vague scrawl of Madeline Langle's oh, signature. <laughs> pristine. Like when was the last time you thought like, I need to keep this, this jean jacket pristine. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Um, well, I know you said another one that you really liked was um, another classic, the Anne of Green Gables series. Actually, it's the author more than, I read the whole mm. Anne of Green Gables series, um, Lucy Maud Montgomery. Um, actually, yeah. there was a period where I went through and re- I read every, I've read every book that she ever published. Um, not every short story, but like a, a number right. of collections because, of, you know, before she wrote Anne of Green Gables, she published like a hundred short stories um, oh. over a 10 year period. And I liked Anne of Green Gables, but then after you sort of, sort of, sort of explored one of my favorites that I still have is called the blue castle. And it's got kind of a standard, like, narrative trope where Mm. there's a heroine who's under everybody's thumb and she's sort of like especially in a period where if you're not married you have to live with your family there's no way that she can make her own money and so when she but when she learns that she's got a um some kind of uh disease that will just kill her but she won't know that she's sick you know like one of those (laughs) it's got like a dramatic dark yeah (laughs) and so she basically throws everything in the wind and just randomly marries this guy and goes to live with him bucket list style yeah and so but sort of in the sort of like early 20th century bucket list like i want to do things on my own but i need to marry this person to do it it. and it's sort of a conventional plot but what i really liked and at the time i was a kid skipping over these sections but Mm -hmm. then i remember reading them again which is that she wrote nature really well well because she was out on prince edward island which apparently is this like beautiful place Mm -hmm. in nova scotia right and so there's a way that she would just sort of write about nature. Like there was a way that, so again, you have this kind of like conventional plot that you'd find in like a Hallmark movie, right? But then there'd be these amazing segments of um, of nature writing in the midst that just describe. Mm-hmm. And I almost, you know, think of this as, as a way to sneak in a kind of um, engagement with nature as like, as a, as a goal for, you know, a person who is free. 
So yeah. No, I'd be interested in revisiting some of her work. I There's like a Netflix series right now called Anne with an E, which is like yes. yet another yeah. remake of mm-hmm. Anne of Green Gables. And it's like a much darker, bleaker take <laughs> towards Anne's backstory. Like I was kind of upset watching it because, I mean, she is basically this orphan and it kind of plays up. I mean in the books but like the family that she's with originally like she kind of has to work for them she's mm-hmm. kind of hired out and they like they're abusive towards her and yeah it was like really emotive i was like sobbing <laughs> watching Emma yeah. well because it's um, like the economic but... realities they have to sort of like the spunky girl you know the spunky orphan right. in many ways is kind of a response to the economic reality of if you're a person without a family and if you're especially female then Mm -hmm. you know but also and then later if you're not married you have no power um and so all they have is their gumption and how they fuck the system and it's really interesting to think about that these are the you know female authors doing this and and montgomery has a sort of interesting um uh history with kind of all these things with marriage (laughs) and she does she sort of um had had several um several men proposed to her and she kind of pushed them aside a bit um, in favor, you know, so she, she was thinking, you know, who am I, who do I want to marry? She did eventually get married because she realized that she, even though she was a famous author, (laughs) she needed to get married in order to, um, to, to have stability. And so in many ways that, you know, the things that, are made heroic in these stories if mm-hmm. you if you push a little further you get to probably end with an e which is the realities of this yeah no it's true <laughs> are quite I mean, disquieting basically just has to use her gumption to convince this old couple to adopt her instead of sending her back to this horrible situation so yeah, but <laughs> it's basically like the family romance she's like Hey, it, I'm. It's, I'm going to make you sort of marry yourself to me as my guardian. Well, I, I like how we've gotten from the Paris in Paris to like orphan abuse. <laughs> but I know you had a couple other favorites. All the yeah, kind family is one, and that's yes, a little bit lighter. It is, um, and you read those too, right? Mm-hmm. I think that's something we yeah. had sort of bonded over. Um, and all the kind family I really like because it's about a working class immigrant Jewish family living in New York at the turn of the 20th century and from the 19th to 20th. So, um, and mm-hmm. there's something about that where the, the, it was about these five girls in the family. But what I really like is just the, the way that this sort of working class family is represented as just like any other family. I mean, you could also call okay. these books um, an American family, but, and yet I learned more about um, Jewish traditions and holidays from those books than from anywhere else. I remember they like make blintzes, like cheese blintzes for one <laughs> holiday. And I was like, I want that. <laughs> I don't know where I'm going to get a cheese blintz in my like rural town that has like 500 people and like one pizza place and one Chinese place. <laughs> that sounds good. <laughs> yeah, I remember. Well, I remember, you know, I mean, there's a more, more uh, substantial Jewish population um, on Long Island where I grew up. <laughs> That's true. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, so I was like, OK, this is this sort of explains um, this culture quite nicely in a way where you go that's what Shabbat is and I learned about kind of the wine that's left out for Elijah and I remember my favorite holiday and this may, may go back to Bernstein Bears was uh, <laughs> Sukkoth where they build a hut outside you just wanted a tree house as a kid I really had like a clear <laughs> wish for my own house right <laughs> 
Like I had kind of like a homeowner. Like if children could get mortgages, I probably was just like waiting. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think I think also it does is does capture sort of like the tight bonds between an immigrant family that's trying to like. Yes into new york or sort of like navigate life there and i think it was the appeal of kind of learning about like life in the city you know in that particular era um even though obviously there were like some hardships along with the warmth of this family (laughs) (laughs) seemed like very appealing to me as a kid well it's sort of similar to one of the other series that i liked a lot as a kid which was the great brain did you ever read the great brain series i don't know that one Mm -hmm. so it's set at the same same time period like turn of the century it's about two brothers one of the brothers is known for his great brain, and he is shockingly one, yes, he's one of the best con men um, oh. in the West. It's I think it's in Utah, and it was actually one of the first times because um, where they the, they're part of a like I think it's a Gentile like Episcopalian family, uh, I believe, and so but they live in a predominantly Mormon area, and so it was really interesting. There's a lot of elements to this. <laughs> Because it was based on this, you know, sort of this guy, like an actual family and growing up. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, the yeah. great brain is uh, kind of a, he's a guy that he's a, you know, he's always sort of running some kind of scam to make money <laughs> and kind mm-hmm. of learn. And like usually something with that scam kind of like, uh, you know, goes wrong and he has to learn, you know, money is not everything. But I always love the kind of independence and savvy that he would kind yeah. of apply to situations. He's like cunning. Well. Sure. Which is sort of similar to um, my final book that I really liked. And I I realized I no longer have a copy of this book. And it's actually really rare, (laughs) which is a a Canadian, uh, a book by a Canadian author. Just like exotic book collection as a kid. (laughs) Rare finds. I have a feeling that some of these, like, you know, you'd have that book fair at school. Sure. You just kind of go through and you're like, I'll take this book. And uh, that's a random selection. Yeah, or my well, that was actually a thing we would do is go to my family would go to bookstores a lot too. Yeah, we got kicked. We got kicked out of the public library when I was a kid. (laughs) Oh no! I don't know. We they told us we had not returned some book. Oh my gosh! And made us pay for it. Fees or something. (laughs) Yes, and my I think my mom was like, "Forget this. This is too much. Let's just buy these books. We don't need to do it." (laughs) You like never went back to the library again. Oh my gosh! No, we never went to the library. I remember like when I was. In my twenties, I remember like joining. I remember joining the public library and going, "This is an untapped resource. <laughs> you just need to return these things on time or renew them." Because funny. my mom was sort of like, "Did we return?" The-? I said, "I swear we returned that book." And she's like, "All right, I'm going to pay it, but we're not letting them get to us again. We're going, we're going to the commercial bookstore where we we're can just, just own books outright." Yes, yes. <laughs> because I think she was like, "I'm paying to buy this book, but we don't even have it." So it's like. <laughs> I see. Well, library book sales, though, do tend to have, like, gems, because people will just, like, donate random stuff. Like, I don't know if you recall, but I sort of have a tradition of finding random things to send to friends from the Mountain View um, book sale, and I thought I would kindly, you know, pick a few fun selections from, like, the bilingual section for our friend Stephanie, um, who was, like, raising her children to be bilingual, to speak Spanish and English, so I picked this book that I thought was just about baby animals and their mothers it turned out to be like about like a pro breastfeeding book (laughs) being promoted by the La Leche League about like trying to normalize breastfeeding 
but I like that we had to go through the whole book and go, wait, there's something that we see in each one of these shots. And then wait, there's a human breastfeeding a human baby at the, okay, I get it. I see the thing with this book, so I guess my Spanish is not that good. But Stephanie's Spanish is excellent. So I handed her this book and she was like, oh, you got me a book called We Love to Breastfeed (laughs) for my daughter. Okay. Well, I always said that these were like the book fairs, like at the school library where you would kind of go. I don't, did you ever have these? It was such a great, yeah. the book fair mm-hmm. was so awesome because you would go and I, you would fill out like a sheet of your wish list of books. And I don't know why this was allowed, but again, I think it's because we, we didn't go to the public library anymore, but I would bring <laughs> home this thing. No one ever gave me a budget and I would just go, I would like these $20 or whatever. I was like, here are the books that I want. And right. I feel like my mom largely gave me whatever. I Free like, ran yeah, with the books. She's like, yeah. I've already cut out the library from their lives. I've got to give them something. Yeah. Well, I think she's um, like, well, we used to pay the library, you know, this much money. So we'll just do it on this. And so um, I think that might have been where, or at the bookstore um, uh, in uh, where in Vermont, where we spent our summers, I might have picked this book up. But it was, it's called yeah. No No Coins, Please. And it is a book, the author, um, in fact, I was reading up on him a little bit. He was 19 years old when he published this book. And by that time, he'd already published half a dozen um, young, uh, sort of like kids books, young adult chapter books. Um, He started, he wrote his first book at age 12. And so I think there was something about this where it has this, um, it's a story of, two teenagers who take a group of like eight to 10 boys on tour. They're, they're all Canadian and they do this like, kind of like, it's like a summer tour that parents would pay for. And I guess would send their kids traveling around and they just drive around America in a van. And one <laughs> what of the, are these books? <laughs> well, I think that's why I was like, the, the version of this book today would be kind of like just they would get to the first chapter and be like, well, this is an insurance nightmare. We have to stop. <laughs> you want to take all these boys, like two 19 year olds, take these boys across like, inter- like I mean, it sounds fun. Yeah. Right. So they drive around America and there's this one character, Artie, who um, he he's sort of very quiet, but um, and his parents are sort of worried about him getting too much spending money. And the the two counselors are kind of like, okay. And then in the first time they stop, he disappears with his spending money. And it just, he comes back and he has no money. Um, but he walks around with a briefcase all the time. And what we learn is that he is actually a hustler who is constantly running. Um, like, this is sort of like the great brain, more uh, updated. He's, he's running these businesses that he's putting together. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the first one is he sells something called a tack jelly where he takes, he buys like a bunch of jelly and puts in these boxes and gets leashes. And he goes, here's your attack jelly. You got to train it. And people are like pet <laughs> rock style. Just purchase this. And he makes oh my God. hundreds he makes of dollars. Fortune. And so he keeps, every time they stop, he keeps rolling into rolling the money that he has in the briefcase into a new like um, boondoggle for other people. He's making all this money. And, oh, and so it's this really fascinating version of the American dream if it were pursued with complete conviction by a tween. <laughs> yeah. um, it's like, so, you know, some earlier like generation version of like Mark Cuban as a kid or something. <laughs> yeah. And sort of he's got this confidence and imagination and he um, and they, you know, he <laughs> he reaches a certain conclusion in which he's sort of punished. Oh. But then 
they keep it basically he's punished by having most of his money taken away and then he but then he's already got plans to like sell more tech jelly at the next stop so like, <laughs> he was irrepressible in his wish to kind of um, yeah be an entrepreneur <laughs> I wonder if some of these kids who had I mean at least for me anyway they had a lot more sort of maybe spunk or attitude or independence like I was like a big rule follower as a kid so I feel like maybe I could vicariously you know imagine <laughs> what it would be like if I mold or something <laughs> well clearly I liked to I was like I liked these things where kids were sort of making their own lives and apparently mm-hmm. their own money on their wits right. <laughs> You're ready to strike out on your own. Well, this was a fun, like, walk through some memories um, connected to all of these books that were part of our childhood. So hopefully it triggered a few memories for you. Um, Good ones, hopefully. Um, (laughs) It made you, you know, think of a good few classics, oldies, but goodies that maybe you can pass on to others. Or I think a lot of these, like, I would enjoy revisiting even now. Yeah, I was looking them up, and that's why I was so sad to find that No Coins, Please um, was was so hard to come by maybe it'll be at the next mountain view book sale (laughs) i will look out for it thank you i appreciate that um so yeah definitely let us know if there are other children's books that you love at shallowresearch.com uh at gmail.com um if you have other recommendations for us but on to our our the more you know segment which will bring you even more wisdom All right, so The More You Know, ta-da, is a newer segment uh, where we were asked to do brief yet actual research into trivial but burning questions like this week's question, can cats have brown eyes? Um, So in this segment, we essentially Google that for you and share our results. People are busy, though. Um, They need us to do that. (laughs) This is true. So the reason I selected this is this question uh, for this week um, I, was, I was telling you, Christina, um, that this question came up between me and my sister. Mm-hmm. Was after my dad passed away. Um, so my sister has some cats, and she said that her cat that has green eyes, just like my dad's green eyes, you know, was super attentive right after my dad died and was like clinging to her and waiting for her and following her everywhere. You know, and my initial reaction was like, that's nice that pets are so intuitive, but she was like, no, but also this means that dad is now living inside the cat. So my sister believes that like my dad's spirit has, has transferred over into her green eyed cat. You know, I mean, which, and as, as I said, supported. I supported due to my own life experience with cats. <laughs> so there you go. One out of two scholars <laughs> believes that this may be a, be a possibility. But as part of this conversation, we also wondered if cats typically had green eyes. Do they ever have brown ones, etc. So here I am to answer that for you. And the answer is no, cats do not typically have brown or black eyes. The darkest they usually get is copper. Most are golden or hazel, if this is something you have ever wondered about. And blue-eyed adult cats are very rare. And it has to do with the level of melanin and iris pigmentation. So kittens tend to start out with blue eyes or a lack of pigmentation, which is actually similar to what happens with human babies. Mm -hmm. Um, But as more pigment is produced, the melanin becomes active. That changes, you know, unless there's some kind of genetic mutation or special case. 
Um, and as part of my, my research into this question, I found an article by the Sacramento Bee from 2015 that did an expose of this phenomenon, digging deep into cat eye color. <laughs> the opening line was like, it's not just the fur, the purr that cats use to hold us spellbound. It's those eyes. <laughs> and so this article included loose evidence connecting cat color, eye color to coat color, but apparently this is not scientifically valid. So sorry, Sacramento B. Um, <laughs> but that's that's all I've got. I mean, I think I think that taps into the subject probably more than it deserves to be tapped into. But if you've ever wondered, um, that's yeah. that's the science behind. Uh, variation in cat eyes yeah and if you want us to um you know in the next episode you know pursue the question are cats familiars for the underworld um you know obviously just email us and uh we'll <laughs> we really can, get into that right we can delve more into my sister's perspective towards this as well but i'm glad that she has a cat companion <laughs> to keep her company um, make her feel like my dad is a little more present um, and my sister is actually going to join us for one of our other segments, this podcast. Um, she's going to be our guest that knows best this week. So we can look forward to that. All right. Well, we'll come back from the break with our guest knows best and uh, see if we can get a cat in on, on this one as well. <laughs> Okay, everyone, welcome back to our Guest Knows Best segment. We have a very special guest with us today for this inspirational poem edition um, in our tribute episode. So my sister Emily is here. Uh, We managed to coordinate. Hello. Hi, Emily. Um, So for this segment, we thought uh, we'd talk a little bit about how our dad encouraged our writing and the writing of others, um, no matter how terrible or wonderful it was. Um, And just to tell a quick story uh, that kind of puts a fine point on how much he believed in writers supporting each other when he was in college or maybe his early twenties, he wrote a letter to Ray Bradbury, like the famous science fiction writer. Um, And I think he had sent him like one of his pieces and asked him to check it out. And he actually got a response back. So he was super psyched like to get a real letter back from Ray. Um, and so they, you know, continued to exchange work. And so Ray Bradbury <laughs> sent him back his work, like completely marked up, <laughs> like in red ink with all of this <laughs> critique and like harsh commentary. And my dad then sort of like flipped emotion from becoming completely thrilled from being completely thrilled to being completely pissed off at Ray Badbury for um, discouraging his young talent. And so then what he did is that he took one of Ray's old poems and marked it up and sent it back to him and <laughs> consequently never heard from him again. Always a brat. Yeah. But most of his other exchanges with writers were much more positive um, did not involve any unwarranted critique. Um, and as I was looking through his things, um, going through things that he saved in his apartment, um, he really loved the writing that we did as kids. And he even saved this terrible poem that I wrote in high school. I feel like this might have even been published in some sort of anthology or won some kind of poetry contest. Um, nice. But it's just the epitome the absolute epitome of like high school angst so I'll just read it now and and bear my soul and um 
Yeah, I'll share it with all of you. <laughs> so this poem is called Dead Battery. <clears throat> Confusion flickers through my soul as a gesture of kindness sent with love by airmail forms ice on the wings and comes crashing to a cold stop, causing something inside to ignite and flames to burn in hostile eyes like the headlights on my plane of thought. I cannot find the key to connect with you and turn them off. I'll allow everyone to take a moment to absorb. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Is that when mom was like, you can no longer be a cheerleader? No. <laughs> <laughs> there was some, like, I think there were some good lines. I like the hostile eyes. Yeah. Yeah. That <laughs> was the high point of the poem. Um, so in the spirit of this segment, Christina, I believe that you have a piece of your own writing to share as well. Uh, yes. So I have, I think this one is in the realm of marked up with, should be marked up with red ink. Um, and this one, I don't think I ever finished this. I think it was like some kind of novel that I was trying to start, but it's got like 10 typed pages and it's got like three, three titles to start off. So I'm going to give you all three of those. (laughs) We can workshop them. And then I'll give you like the first paragraph or two and that's it. All right, so the title of this thing is The Human Gift. Who knows what that is? (laughs) And then right after that, after my name, it says Part One, The Taking. And then if that isn't enough, there is then uh, marks that say Smoking Gun. So there's three different intros to this. (laughs) All right. Take us away. Okay, so here. All right, here we go. So this is the opening of The Human Gift, Part One, The Taking, Smoking Gun. Uh, I rattled along with the train for 53 minutes as the sunlight faded into the dull gray of dusk. This was the hour that color lost its luminosity and distinction, becoming an insipid mixture of light and dark hues of black. It was the single most depressing part of the day, when light seemed to have been overcome by dark, day by night, good by evil, and interest by ambivalence. My rail-riding comrades may have felt the same sinking feeling, but they did not betray it as newspapers and magazines hid their faces, and consequently their emotions. I remember their slightly familiar faces, yet still strangers during our long daily rides. Courteous men swayed in the aisles, a dance unknown to those with seats, yet not envied. The odd cellular phone was stuffed, unheeded, in a pocket as the long day had ended, taking with it all traces of hustle and industriousness. Wow. So that's so it. Actually I, who bad. knows where this was I, I going. feel like that was pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> I think you could have like a young adult novel on your hands. <laughs> this is remains um, a catcher in buried. the buried. Yeah. Poetry forms. <laughs> well, if it was the if only if it was like three separate, like the a wrinkle in, time. in the eye. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a wrinkle in time three times. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> like I think that was like a hallmark of my early writing. Like just sort of like very pretentious uh, kind of like titling. I think one yes. I wrote like a like some kind of I wrote like a novel in high school, and for some reason I thought let's put all the chapter titles in French. But who writes a novel in high exactly. school? Exactly. You should still be proud. Be proud of yourself yeah. for that. I mean, it's no dead battery. <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, cast your hostile eyes on that. But I think <laughs> my dad was genuinely proud, Emily, of your writing. Um, and he actually really wanted you to focus more on it, like even in college. Do you want to quickly tell the story of when he tried to get you to go to Bryn Mawr? Not Bryn Mawr. Uh, oh, Bard. 
nice. Well, I was really ignorant to the world of higher academics. <laughs> so I came with like shiny black stilettos. And, like, <laughs> yeah, so. And like horrible charcoal paintings. Like my art was worse than my writing. Well, he, um, so basically to give some context, um, he like really wanted to encourage my sister to apply to small liberal arts colleges where she could study like both English, uh, you know, and creative writing and art, which is what she was like more interested in at the time. And so he had a friend who was like in the faculty at Bard. Uh, Thomas. Yeah, Lux. and he set up this interview with her with the admissions committee. So my sister was like resistant to going. I bombed it. <laughs> I bombed. <laughs> I don't but know. it worked out in the end because I did end up going to a liberal arts art school where I could do other things. Yeah, yeah. No, and so wow. my dad said like they drove up there. My sister went in, and then like a minute later, she walked out. My dad was like, "What's wrong? Like, what happened?" And she was like, "Well, <laughs> they were just very pretentious." <laughs> <laughs> the first question they asked her was like, why do you want to go here? And she was like, I don't know. My dad's making me go to this interview. <laughs> and like, well, I guess this interview is over then. <laughs> no, it wasn't that short. It wasn't really about that. It was like the energy of the person. <laughs> and he wasn't very encouraging. Well, I think it did work out for the best. But after that, my dad was like, yes. all right, fine. You're going to art school. However you want to do this, <laughs> you can. <laughs> no, it's fine. It and then you really did do great writing stuff. I think what it is, is like people, when the, like you come from a background where you didn't have the opportunities of others, like he's the first to go to college. He wanted the best for us. And he had a certain idea of what yeah. that meant. Yeah based on societal norms and Duke obviously was a part of that. Go me. (laughs) But I think a big part of it was I always love poetry, but he's always saying I should write fiction instead of poetry because it's more marketable. Oh yeah. Right. So So you didn't want to be pushed into his path for success, but then. Yes. But mm. I think a lot of parents do that because they realize what they didn't have and they want it for you, but we're so like silly and like, you know, like, we're just ignorant, and we don't see it in a positive way. We're rebellious for the wrong right. reason. Okay. Well, why yeah. don't you read your poem that actually did get... Well... Did you want to read the one from Identity? Yeah. Thing? Yeah, so... This is an older poem from when I was in college, but it's really appropriate based on his passing, because it kind of touches on things that we really connected on that were brought up during the time of his death. Okay. Go for um, it. So, here we go. It's called At Twelve. There were three diamonds of light in the corner by the stairs. One above the light switch, dirty by finger marks. Two on the closet where a young ghost was crouched. Three below the smooth metallic image of a saint. Like constellations, the seven sisters, they seemed to know the other existed. Outside, a nightgown girl was running from summer dusk in eternal gnats her arms outstretched and begging to be noticed more than the ears, fragile crevices, the eyes, tender folds. On the porch, the father smiled at 12, at 12, as the corner lost its light marks, unseen, unscarred. Oh, and I remember dad standing like on the porch so often. He would go out there to smoke, which unfortunately probably yes. caused mm-hmm. some of this. But. <laughs> but even as like a very personal note, like one of the last things he told me was his favorite time of knowing me in terms of memory was sitting on the porch and talking about life and the afterlife and dreams and that he really believed that people lived on in spirit. Yeah, yeah. So there we go. It all ties <laughs> together. I mean, I, yeah. I mean, 
even though it only has one title, I really like it. Thank you. Um, I'll work on that. (laughs) No, it's really nice to share this. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, thank you, So I think we're just going to close. I'm going to read a very short segment from one of my dad's favorite poems from someone else that was a mentor to him, which was this random poet, Robert Lacks, who I think kind of rose to some notoriety in, like, the 60s and 70s. Well... He was best friends with Thomas Right, Gordon, who was very successful. Right. Which, and they both went to, where was it? They went to Princeton? Some, yeah, they somehow like met in college. But anyway, this this guy, Robert yeah. Lacks, became a mentor to my dad. And he was like a hermit for most of his life. He lived in like an island in Greece, but somehow also had a correspondence with my dad. Um, and he really loved his poetry. Snail yes. mail. <laughs> nice. Their correspondence <laughs> is actually archived um, at St. Bonaventure University's library, um, yeah. where he was faculty. Along with my film called the alley violinist this is true yes which because it ties <laughs> not so too it ties into horn. this poem yeah <laughs> so his most famous volume was called love had a compass so i'll just read a little piece of that yes. beginning poem and it's from a book of poems called circus of the sun which is about a circus family in canada oh and it also it touches into life and death and it's a beautiful book cool okay so this was a little segment <laughs> that we put on his um his program like at the memorial service and and read um yes. when we kind of went to scatter his ashes this past weekend um so here we go <laughs> all right and in the beginning was love love made a sphere all things grew within it The sphere then encompassed beginnings and endings, beginning and end. Love had a compass whose whirling dance traced out a spear of love into the void. And that's kind of the most famous piece. So I think we'll close out there. But thanks for joining us, Emily. Thank you. I just wanted to say I think that the main thing that our father believed in was love. Definitely. You know, and love is free most of the time. <laughs> I said it's the beginning of another poem. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I look Aww, forward to whatever art comes from. Thank you both. Yes. I think there's a Cheryl Crow song called. Yeah, love is Cheryl Crow. So we can we can get her to join exactly. as the next guest. <laughs> exactly. All right. Oh, okay. Thank Good you. Night. Bye. Good night. So for this week's roundup, we're going to do something a little bit different uh, rather than a roundup of perhaps not so random things that uh, Laura and I are enjoying. Um, Instead, um, the roundup this week is a group of not so random things that Nick, her father, loved. And we wanted to uh, pay some tribute by dedicating this segment um, as well as this whole episode to him. Yeah, thanks, Christina. So thank you, Christina, also for just letting me talk about my dad and what he liked for this entire episode. Um, But we've already touched upon his literary interests. He's a big reader and a big writer. Um, But he had a lot of other, I mean, he loved to cook, um, wonderful cook of Italian food. Um, Was also super into music as well. And just so many good memories attached to him involving us in those interests. Um, that still stick with, like, not just me, but with my brother and sister and, you know, other people he was friends with or mentored as well. Um, So I'm just going to mention a smattering of things um, in addition to a couple of things that I've been enjoying lately. Um, 
in the last couple of weeks as I kind of cope with him <laughs> passing away or mm-hmm. just think about good ways to remember him. Um, so the first thing I mentioned Italian food, um, but the style of food that he used to cook is really known as cucina povera. So it comes from kind of a culture of poverty, really within villages in Italy where our ancestors came from, um, where they're barely getting by, and um, a lot of the ingredients were just these basics. Um, and the infamous recipe in our family that I just wanted to quickly share on the podcast um, today, kind of as a classic thing that he would cook, uh, were these cheese balls. And so, Christina, I don't, have I ever made you cheese balls? Have I ever forced you to eat these? Uh, I don't think I've had the pleasure, but now right. I'm going to put well, this now, on my list for the yes, next time. exactly. Yeah. Um, so, cheese balls are basically like a poor man's meatball, where instead of the meat, which is more expensive, you use, like, the inside of a loaf of bread as yeah. kind of the bulk of your meatball. So, it's literally just, like, eggs, Parmesan cheese, and the inside of a round loaf of Italian bread, like, mm. ripped out into little shreds. <laughs> um, and so the only other thing you might add is, like, a little bit of pepper or, pals- or parsley. Um, but you just – you mix everything together. If it's not quite moist enough, you, like, you know, very scientifically, <laughs> like, put on a smattering of water. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, you form these bread patties and then you saute them in olive oil, of course, um, and then just soak them and cook them and simmering in tomato sauce for like a couple of hours. They're so damn good. <laughs> so I will <laughs> definitely make um, those for you, but encourage you all to try kind of those simple recipes that you know, you just can't go wrong with over the years. And my brother and sister and I have like made these for people all over the world. Like my sister made cheese balls. She somehow found the ingredients when she was living in Ethiopia, the Peace Corps. Like she made them in order to endear herself <laughs> to people in the village where she was stationed. Um, so yeah, I'll, I'll make them for you as a treasured friend. You deserve a cheese ball. All right. And uh, did they work? to endear her to uh they did yeah (laughs) and they did yeah and I mean I think the other thing the thing that I'll miss is that like even though the recipe is super simple like every single time we would like call my dad to be like is it six eggs (laughs) like how many cups of of parjuan cheese he's like all right you guys need to like write down this recipe (laughs) um but it's just one of those things that like got passed on so you know many of our listeners may also have a recipe like that that everyone just kind of knows how to make and it's emblematic of their family and it's always my go-to for like potlucks and things but I love the way that you kind of can where you made it always about connecting back to him yeah yeah like you'd always sort of you know have this feigned annoyance or maybe not feigned I don't know <laughs> he'd call him to be like I'm making cheese balls again how do you make them yep. um but I think he enjoyed yeah the fact that we all like were into it and we were like very competitive about it like we were very confident that ours were better than his at this point <laughs> which he did not believe and there's like an infamous story where he took he took them to a potluck in our neighborhood and like some random guy came up to him and was like I hear that you are the man that made these we never saw that guy again but my dad like wrote off that <laughs> for like 10 years I don't know where this came from um, but they are that good um so I mean really I think their condition is if you know me like get me to cook these for you hmm. well I know yeah I wonder definitely. if that guy had a cat with him because he really could have he could have been an angel you don't know <laughs> I don't know. Um, so the other, I mean, he was into so many, he was 
up on current music, but into a lot of classic music as well. I mean, classic rock more often than not. Um, things like Bob Dylan type era. Um, and so one of our other favorite things to do is just to shop for old records together. Like I feel like shopping for old records and books you know, kind of goes hand in hand together somehow. Um, and I know that you used to spend some summers like in Princeton, right? There's an amazing record shop in Princeton. Have you ever been there? Yes, I know exactly the one you're talking about. It's on the corner. I forget what it's yep. called. Mm-hmm. might have been called Princeton Records for all I know. But it, um, uh, yeah, I mean, that place was, it's a gym. Hope it's still it there. is for sure. I know. I hope it's still there. We probably should have googled that before <laughs> this podcast. Um, so if you are in the central New Jersey area, go to that shop, and if you are not there, find a shop like it. Yep. Send us um, some audio just to prove that it's right, <laughs> right, right. Um, and like we still have a record player in our apartment. I love playing kind of these. Yeah, old tracks that I used to listen to with my parents. Um, the another artist that they were super into was Stevie Wonder. So my mm. other my other related recommendation was tied to a great memory with my dad, where for Christmas I got him tickets to see Stevie in Madison Square Garden. And my brother and I actually ended up fighting over who would get the second ticket to go with him, and I ended up buying a third ticket. <laughs> so my brother enjoyed the concert, but like separated from us in a different <laughs> section of MSG. Uh, it was like the compromise. But my dad and I were like, I don't know, just the energy, even though this is huge, you know, arena or venue, um, incredible. I mean, Prince appeared randomly. Like, Prince was just what? there to, like, watch the concert. And then, like, Stevie Wonder <laughs> threw him a guitar. And then Prince got on stage. Tony Bennett showed up. I don't know. It was, like, <laughs> incredible. The people in front of us um, were had flown, like, from the UK, like, just to attend <laughs> the concert. People were, like, dancing in the aisles. And so Stevie is currently still touring. So that's my other kind of word of encouragement. Like, get tickets to his concert before he retires and stops singing. Yeah. Yeah, I um, love yeah. Stevie Wonder, even just when he did the um, uh, Carpool Karaoke oh, yeah. with uh, James Gordon. I mean, just, yeah, the energy, and he's got, like, a wry wit, and just mm-hmm. is able to just bring people together, even if it's just me to my iPad to watch that. Yeah, so, yeah. so that's, like, one of my peak music listening or musical, you know, experiences with my dad, so... Yeah, I, I think he's playing in Vegas soon. Like, it kind of inspired me to try to go. Maybe I will. All right, let's um, talk about that right after we yeah finish travel plans definitely. <laughs> um, so then, I just have three other kind of quick <laughs> recommendations, kind of connected to my dad. Um, he over the past couple of years, he was really sick, but he was also really pissed that Trump was in office. <laughs> So just to make things like even worse. Um, so even though he wasn't super politically active himself, he had a lot of, of strong opinions about kind of where our country was headed and, um, you know, is, was really hoping that these 2018 midterms will be a turning point for us um, back to some sanity. Um, so I think the site that I've been checking out the most is called Swing Left. Have you have you seen this site I have not. Um, So basically you just enter your zip code and it tells you the district, the congressional district, most likely, you know, closest to you um, that could be of a swing situation. So like there's a district even, you know, in traditionally progressive California, there's a district like an hour from me where a Republican won last time the seat by like 3% or something. It was a super close election. And so I love that. Like it's sort of connecting people to what's around them and like the elections where they can best make an impact and it's super easy to use. So especially if you live in a state with 
lots of tight races, uh, definitely check out Swing Left. So you're in Florida. You might have a few more interesting. <laughs> well, yeah, there was battles. a New York Times uh, infographic about this, which is more the question. That infographic was interesting because it said, "Do you live in a bubble? You know, how far uh, are you huh. from someone of yeah. you know, like how far is the the closest district?" that is the opposite of the district that you live in. Right. So. Right. 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 Um, yeah, that is interesting. And sort of like, and I looked up like where I grew up and I looked up where I live in Florida and it's sort of interesting to think about, I think when I was living in New York, it was more, um, it was more diverse than it is in Florida, the way that mm-hmm. things are set up. Yeah. So if you're so inclined to try to like flip the house, um, <laughs> take back and jaw, definitely check out that site. Um, or a similar one, you know, that you can acti- use to activate yourself in some way. Mm-hmm. Because November is not too far around the corner. No, I think I already have a ballot for some election in my house right now. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> um, okay, so then two other quick things um, that are more about coping mechanisms, um, but also kind of related. So my my dad also like tar- so he had cancer of the esophagus and one of the only things he could eat were italian ices so in some sort of like weird connection to him i've been eating a lot of italian ices and popsicles mm. um and so i have a random recommendation for chloe's popsicles and so i will say that while my dad just kind of bought the old school italian ices that had a little wooden spoon mm. <laughs> you know and had two flavor options like lemon or cherry <laughs> that were probably <laughs> not all natural i on the other hand have chosen to pay like five dollars a box <laughs> at Whole Foods for these Chloe's popsicles. Um, the mango one tastes just like a mango lassie. The dark chocolate one is I mean, I'm paying a lot of money for like what is essentially a block of ice with minimal <laughs> chocolate flavoring, but the kids like love them and they are 60 calories, so that's oh, fun nice. as well. And what's the and is the sugar content also probably a little bit lower than a regular? yes yeah yeah. it's all like natural of course it's like all natural and organic so that's another bonus um so i've been like binging on those but you know not feeling too bad (laughs) like guilt-free yeah have another popsicle right so they're like the bougier take on my dad's jelly and ices (laughs) um last but not least um so it was somewhat dark but potentially fun turn um I so my dad wanted his ashes scattered kind of off the Hudson River so I had to find like a boat to take us out because it it turns out it's illegal to scatter your ashes in the Hudson you have to go like a certain from shore and And you very clearly went that number of miles correct well yes this is (laughs) is happening on Saturday so (laughs) we will we will see yeah no illegal activity for keeping this all on the up and up yes I was like, all right, I got to find a boat to do this. So now, you know, of course, there's an app for that because there's an app called Get My Boat. Is it like Uber for boats? Kind of, yeah. You're like, I need to book a boat for like three hours this Saturday. You can like put in your specifications. I mean, it doesn't exactly pick you up. I have to go to this yacht club in like Sheepshead Bay. Yeah. But (laughs) yeah, I found this really nice 
guy and his father who are going to take us out on their miniature tugboat and hopefully have a successful ceremony but I, I hope that you will use it for a more fun and exciting purpose um I don't think know, like what what save up your dollars like next birthday party rent yourself a yacht for like an hour or something so get my boat yeah nice um so yeah th- that's all I've got but hopefully this is giving you a little bit of a flavor of my dad um we'll really miss him and I, I think what I wanted to close out with which um you'll hear in a second um it's just another recording from my brother who kindly also contributed like the theme song to this podcast um but is planning to play the song at his memorial by um Paul McCartney called put it there and I hadn't heard of the song before my brother introduced me to it, but it was a song that was special between him and my dad, which kind of makes sense because there's lyrics about a father and a son. Um, but the idea is that, you know, you'll put it there, you'll kind of um, share the weight of your problems, you know, like I'll help you kind of make your load a little bit lighter. And um, the really touching story is that when my dad was in the hospital at one point, um, he couldn't talk. He was struggling to talk. He was like panicking because he just like couldn't get the words out physically and a chaplain who was there like suggested that he write down what he wanted to say and he couldn't even do that because he was just so weak and like in a state of crisis and so then my brother just like took his hand and said it's okay dad it's fine just put it there and, like squeezed his hand and my dad relaxed and started smiling um so he's planning yeah to sing this song in tribute to him so we'll play a little bit of uh, a recording of my brother doing well thank you very much um for listening this episode um as always thank you although this is the first time we're saying it uh, thank you to matthew di giovanni for our fabulous intro and outro music um as always you can reach us at shallow research at gmail.com send in um, your the more you know suggestions uh, as well as um, let us know if the uh, princeton uh, record shop still is in business i guess i could google that but I need to uh, galvanize the army of, of shallow research listeners. And thank you, um, you know, for, for joining us for this, this special tribute to um, Nick, Laura's dad. And join us for our next episode. Uh, thanks again.